is New Albion calling. New Albion calling. Good evening. I'm Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb, and you are listening to the ARC Light program. Coming up in a few short minutes is another of our slumbertime stories. And this week, it's part two of a three-parter that has some connection with the moon. Wait a minute, Mabel. If this is part two, then what happened to part one? What's that? It, it comes after part three? Oh, well, once again, Mabel, you are not making much sense. But who am I to question your great wisdom? Anyway, I don't care about that as we have something very exciting to share with you in the form of this week's Musing of the Moment. Some of you may recall the wonderful recordings of old Albion folk songs that we broadcast for you a few programmes back. Well, we are delighted to say that for this week's Musing, we have another of Dame Hildebrand's enigmatic recordings. This one is a bit different. As this year, Dame Hildebrand was contacted to return to Skegthorpe to give a leavers speech to the pupils of the school where she was previously the headmistress. As you can imagine, the venerable dame was a fountain of sensible advice for the young boys and girls, and as a pioneer of waxo spiralograph recordings, she was adamant that the speech was recorded to allow its profound words to inspire other children as they set out into the wider world. So if you have young ones who are not yet abed, I would suggest you bid them attend the wireless with you and hear these inspiring words. I'm sure they will grow into better citizens as a result. Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. ARC presents Musings of the Moment With Dame Hildebrand, Dylan Spaniels. Peasants who can afford to go to school of 1899 Wear clothes If I could offer only one word of advice Then clothes would be it also, you are dirty, and you should wash frequently. Church. Go to church, but stand at the back and wash first. If you must bring your goat, make sure you wash it first. If you must sing, then keep it to a minimum and get lessons. Teach your children to sing. Teach your goat to sing, especially if you plan to bring it to church. the funky chicken at your wedding. In fact, while I'm on the subject, never dance with a chicken, funky or otherwise. Flush. Flush again just to be sure. Wash your hands. Wash yourself again, all over, just to be sure. Gruel. Eat all your gruel. You can't work if you are hungry. Be kind to your knees, you'll need them to work. Look after your back, you'll also need this to work. 
if you can't work, you will probably die. Or, at the very least, end up in the workhouse. Don't say I didn't warn you. Don't beg, it's not a good look. Stop being so unbearably jolly. Keep your distance. And trust me about the clothes. And the washing. And the funky chicken. And above all, remember these simple words. Don't come too close to me, as I do have a gun, and I will shoot you. That certainly got me thinking. Now on the light programme, it's time for Slumbertime Stories. And this week, it's rather confusing, since it's part two of a three-parter. Apparently, it's the intention of the author that part two should precede part one, and part three should appear at the intersection of these two aforementioned episodes. Well, I've never met this author, but he sounds like a right ninny to me. Anyway, here it is. In the Shadow of the Moon, Part 2, by Darren Callum. Still very much dazed, and even more confused. Tobias Fitch tried to force his gummed-up eyes open just a little to take in his surroundings. He had no idea how long he had been unconscious, and, as yet, no memories were demisting themselves enough to allow him to recall how he got to that particular state in the first place. Trying to ignore the throbbing that seemed to come from almost every part of his body, he dragged one of his eyelids open and waited groggily as everything gradually came into focus. The first thing that he realised was that he was in the open air and lying on some sort of extremely uncomfortable metal table or trolley. Above him, he could make out a crescent shape drifting lazily amongst the clouds. Ah, the moon, he thought. It was at least a familiar thing to focus on, whilst he allowed his other senses to come back online. He became aware of noises around him, hammering and grinding, 
and the general discordant melody of construction. Not too loud or insistent, just enough to let him know that something was being built nearby. He tried to move his arms, but was dismayed to find that they were strapped to the cold metal construction beneath him. However, his legs gave every impression of being unrestrained, despite the fact that he could not move them very much. He had no further time to consider his predicament before he heard footsteps moving fairly swiftly towards him, and the sound of something fairly chunky being dragged along behind. Despite throbbing pain from pretty much every part of his neck and shoulders, he craned his head towards the sounds, and his other eye popped open in surprise at the sight of a begoggled man with wispy grey hair looming over him, busying himself with lighting a rather gothic-looking oxyacetylene torch. I want a minute, there, gurgled Fitch, desperately trying to wriggle his arms free to defend himself. Oh, do restrain yourself, came back a drawling, monotone voice that was so dull it almost sent him back into unconsciousness. I will not injure you if you hold still. Despite its overwhelming tediousness, the voice had the ring of truth, and Fitch decided to do as he was bid and save his strength for now. In any case, he realised that the straps holding his arms extended right over his chest, and he was going nowhere in a hurry. With surprising deafness, the balding man with a rat-like nose quickly wielded the torch flame against a chain that appeared to be attached to his hand, and a weight which Fitch had only just become aware of was removed from his wrist. His eyes were clearing all the time, and Fitch could see now that the man had cut the bindings that had fastened an attaché case to his wrist, and having placed the same on a handy workbench, was now proceeding to force it open. The flame of the torch flickered against his vole-like features, and Fitch realised that he recognised the face from somewhere. Oh, I flow, gobbled Fitch, racking his dim but slowly reviving brain for some sort of clue. Give great care on opening case, came a bizarrely accented voice, and another figure stepped into Fitch's field of vision. This one he recognised with a start that sent jangling memories of trains, taxis and ornithopters rampaging back into his sore head. The man had dark features, with tight curls on his head, and, most tellingly, an ornate moustache that Fitch remembered all too well. How? What? When? spluttered Fitch in his general direction, and then reprised superfluously, How? The mustachioed man, resplendent in a velvet smoking jacket, ignored his snivelling entirely, and instead bent over to inspect the contents of the now open attaché case. The mouse-featured man, who seemed to be dressed entirely in grey from his drab lab coat to his uninspiring shoes, removed his goggles and reached into the case 
to pull out what seemed to be a, a small diode valve, or similar, and held it up in two bony fingers to allow the other man to look more closely. Attend with the maximum care, intoned the second man with, both comically and eerily, an entirely different accent to when he had spoken previously. Naturally, I do not wish to damage the very last piece of our ascension engine, drawled the grey figure in his usual drab tones. You may desist with your admonishments. Meantime, the very mention of the word ascension had sent a shiver down Fitch's spine, and he finally managed to place the grey-coated man who was surely none other than Rhenish Snook, a member of the much-feared Fourth Day Ascension League. It seemed that the case he had been carrying obviously contained something of very great value to them, but chillingly the talk of a machine being near completion troubled him the most. Snook, growled Fitch, feeling his spirits lift a little as adrenaline pumped through his veins. With a throaty yell, he threw himself against his restraints to see if he could break free, but with no success. Nevertheless, Snook did give a little yelp and step backwards, nearly dropping the glistening gold capsule. The mustachioed man, without showing any obvious signs of alarm, stepped in with a dancer's elegance and took it from him. Surfeit of care applied. Permit Ian to intercede, drawled Moustache Man in yet another different and completely unplaceable accent. Didn't really have him down as an Ian, thought Fitch, but he kept this irrelevant insight to himself. Despite his groggy state, his instincts were beginning to reassert themselves, and it was clear he needed to find out as much information as he could about where he was and what was going on. A cunning ploy, or sneaky deception was required, so he rummaged deep within the recesses of his still-throbbing grey matter and found... not a dicky squiggle. So he went for plan B instead. Where am I? And what is going on? He asked, as civilly as he could muster, as his mother had told him once that politeness always pays, and... Surprisingly, it seemed to do the trick. Well, since you ask so nicely, responded Snook, whilst cautiously double-checking that Fitch's restraints were still very much secure. And you are possibly not long for this world. Allow me to fill you in. Before Fitch could quiz him further on this implied threat to his body corporeal, Snook pulled a large metal lever that swung the whole apparatus to which Fitch was attached into an upright position, so he could see the incredible contraption laid out before them. They were in the garden of a reasonably well-appointed city house, and configured in a circle some thirty feet or so across was a rather mind-boggling array of instruments, pipes, and multicoloured braided wiring laid out across a fretwork iron frame. Copper and brass tubes, 
clearly supplying electricity, and uh, perhaps fluids of some sort snaked across the shrubberies towards the buildings. Laid out in the centre of this circle was an elaborate flooring of some exotic-looking material that glistened like a pearl as the light of the early afternoon sun caught it. Working away on parts of this bizarre edifice were two more men who looked remarkably like Ian the Moustache. In fact, they looked so identical that Fitch's brain was struggling to comprehend it all. Behold, the magnificent fourth-day ascension engine, intoned Snook joylessly, without a particular sense of occasion. A perfect contraption for the invoking of chaos and all the fun that entails. Sounds like a right barrel of laughs, muttered Fitch, his eyes flicking this way and that, trying to take in the whole landscape and any potential escape routes it might offer. None appeared to present itself, so Fitch decided to carry on with the conversation, even though Snook's drab voice was so dull that he might soon become quite keen to pass on to the land immortal. How does it work, then? Revealing nothing is a salient advice, interjected Ian Moustache features in his odd shifting tones, and all three of the triplets turned to stare directly at Fitch with three pairs of eerily unblinking dark brown eyes. All right, keep your wigs on, muttered Fitch, trying not to show how unnerved he was by the whole escapade. No idea, drawled Snook, rubbing his thin fingers together in a way that could quite possibly be thought to denote pleasure. My understanding is that it either raises the dead, summons ghouls from the other side, or tunnels into the core of the earth. Ian has been a little vague about its exact function, and utterly silent on its method of operation. Personally, I care not. Somewhat mollified by this, Ian and his identical colleagues went back to their work. We're going to give all three a shot and see what happens. And I guess I'm your sacrificial chihuahua, inquired Fitch through gritted teeth. Indeed. And as the ultimate expression of pure science, it will be our great honour to watch and observe the results of this, the final experiment. He turned towards Ian of the impressive nasal rug, who was waiting patiently by a gold and copper box with a receptacle on top that looked a perfect fit for the valve unit from Fitch's case. Snook was warming to his fiendish theme and continued to drawl on as he moved to join him. Ian has already worked great wonders with his team, clearing the metropolis of inhabitants and collating all the items required to build this contraption. We are, naturally, most grateful to you for supplying this last piece of the puzzle, albeit 
unwittingly. By this point in the speech, Snook's utterly boring jabbering was really starting to get right on Fitch's wick. So much so that he thought his head was going to explode. Oh, do get on with it then, you little weasel! He blurted, feeling that he'd really rather had it with trying to be civil. Sorry, Mother. Well, there's, there's no need to be like that. You did ask. Well, I'm unasking. What are you waiting for exactly? Only for my brother to join us, and lo, here he is. Fitch twisted his neck to look in the direction of Snook's gaze and saw another identical grey rodent-faced man striding with a fair amount of alacrity across an herbaceous border towards the machine. Fear not, brother dear, I am in attendance. Let the marvels of science begin, droned the new arrival as he skirted a neatly clipped bay tree and took his place alongside his twin brother. Oh, for all that is holy, there's two of him and three of them. Fitch was quite done with it all now. Indeed, may I introduce my twin brother, a rawish snook? Droned a Rhenish snook with quite ear-grating dullness. I really wish you wouldn't, muttered Fitch, who had pretty much lost the will to live. Just kill me already. This rather put the kibosh on the ceremonials, so without aught ado of any type, the two dull scientists wheeled the trolley arrangement, with Fitch strapped upright on it, into the circle, and moved to one of the complicated-looking control boxes. Ian and his two identically hirsute companions moved with a kind of robotic elegance, to complete the construction and vacate the circular area, taking up positions by the controls without a further word. By the biggest of the panels was an extremely ornate-looking brass telescope. Ensuring position of moon in relation to moo here and confirm same Cynthia, instructed Ian in his oddly meandering voice and one of the other mustachioed clones, Cynthia, presumably, looked through the telescope, and after a moment's fiddling with the control wheels, gave a cheesy double thumbs up. Fitch and the two snooks gazed up at the moon, and wondered what exactly had to do with this contraption's operation, clearly feeling a little superfluous, as the three identical weirdos began to flick switches and turn dials, causing steam to cough from several brass orifices. One of the snooks took out a tiny notebook and pencil and stood poised to record anything of interest. Nothing of any particular note took place, however, apart from a rising hum, more puffs of steam and a slight glow of pearlescent light from the circular floor. A Fitch, having braced himself for imminent death, or transmogrification into a demon, or both, realised that nothing much had occurred, and quite frankly, the whole thing seemed to be a vast quantity of tedious mouth, 
and not a great deal of splendidly tailored trousers. The two snooks exchanged curious glances, and then one of them, reddish perhaps, piped up. Are we waiting for anything in particular? Ian looked up from his dials and replied brightly. The optimum operating temperature approaches. Oh, good, replied Rhenish, or Rawlish, without really sounding like he meant it, and made a little scribble with his slightly too small pencil in his undersized notebook. And Rawlish, or Rhenish, for want of something better to do, glanced casually at his pocket watch. Then, apropos of entirely zipperoony, Cynthia barked, Here, move flight in final approach! Ian added cryptically, while staring directly at the two snooks. Did you know that light is both a particle and a wave? Before Fitch or the snooks could take in any of this crypto-babble, the exotic material in the machine suddenly, but mercifully briefly, glowed white-hot, before relaxing to a shimmering glow. An innocuous but dense puff of smoke appeared between where Fitch was strapped to the gurney and the two snooks stood looking less than impressed. However, as the smoke cleared, a small and distinctly curious figure could be seen standing in the centre of the circle, with its back to Fitch, busying itself with what seemed to be a very large weapon of some description. The figure was quite a thing. Although hard to make out clearly, it was clad in an extremely unusual-looking red and gold spacesuit, with a large tank of gas on its back, and pipes feeding a green-tinged vapour into a large domed helmet. What little of its features that were visible within the helmet were very odd indeed. It was red-skinned, and had a knotted little reptilian-looking face with no nose, pointed ears, a wide, spiky, gold-toothed mouth, and three eyes on stalks protruding from the top of its head. Curiously, it was so preoccupied with trying to operate the large rifle-type thing that it didn't seem to have noticed where it was or that anyone was looking at it. Eventually, in a way that would have been quite comical if it hadn't been so darn weird, one of the three eyes looked up from the weapon and glanced with increasing alarm at its surroundings and the two snooks gazing slack-jawed back at it. The other two eyes jolted upwards and stared intensely in three different directions. A demon, I presume? Jolly good, muttered one at the snooks. The other began scribbling in his tiny notebook once more. However, before further inquiries could be made, the newcomer panicked and flicked an operating switch on his giant plasma rifle. A great stream of hideous yellow light streaked from the weapon, narrowly missing the controls of the machine, but neatly slicing Rhenish, or possibly Rawlish, clean in two. The subdivided man's last words 
as the weapon continued to send bursts of fiendish light in all directions, were probably somewhat suboptimal before he gurgled his last. The little demon, barely three feet high, was clearly not in control of the fearsome light gun, and in an effort to control it, swivelled round, and the edge of the beam caught Fitch's gurney, sending him and it hurtling out of the machine and down into a rose bed with a mighty crash. Winded, but having survived much worse, Fitch realised that he'd fallen with his back and the full body of the trolley between him and the tooled-up imp. Instinctively, he moved his arm to check for wounds, and, finding with surprise that it was now freed from the restraints, moved with alacrity to unbuckle the remaining straps. Then, without pause, he rolled away from the rosebed and down the manicured lawns, before falling unceremoniously over what was, presumably, a previously unseen ha-ha. Behind him, the sounds of plasma fire seemed to have died down, and, grabbing a nearby rock, the only weapon to hand, Fitch peered cautiously over the stonework of the ha-ha to see if he was being pursued. Looking back towards the great circular apparatus, Fitch found, with great relief, that no one seemed to be pursuing him, presumably believing him dead or mortally wounded. The small creature had put down his oversized weapon and was now standing at the machine's controls. Of the second Snook brother and Ian, Cynthia and co, there was now no sign at all. Rather, all the activity seemed to centre on the machine that was now popping with puffs of smoke and without any other sounds, three more of the little demons appeared, this time accompanied by a three-legged sinuous robot and a large pile of bizarre pieces of equipment that vaguely resembled parts of the circular machine, but on a much larger scale. As Fitch gazed on dumbfounded, the tribot began to move the apparatus off the disc, and the small creatures took up the controls where the mustachioed men had been earlier. Before he could make any further sense of it all, additional puffs of smoke and more equipment and tribots appeared. Again, they moved rapidly to clear the items from the machine to allow even more to arrive. The pace seemed to be quickening all the time as the creatures and their machines carried out their fiendish plan. What Fitch needed now was an equally cunning plan, but nothing was yet suggesting itself. If these were indeed demons, they were extremely well equipped, and much more organised than such spectres usually were. He glanced up at the moon again, now drifting past the vertical and waning to the west. Finally, with a cold shudder, he realised exactly what he was witnessing, and he knew that he had no option but to do something to stop it, or at the very least, warn others. Demons, my ass, he muttered, to no one in particular. As Fitch continued to observe, more and more little creatures, tribots and other exotic contraptions continued to arrive. It was clear enough that they were obviously in a great hurry to construct another machine, several times larger than the first. 
Pieces were being assembled by the tribots with great speed and skill. An even bigger tripod machine had arrived in a folded-up state, and after stretching out its great jointed metal limbs, had proceeded to demolish parts of a nearby townhouse to make more space for construction. The second giant disc-shaped apparatus was already nearing completion, and Fitch could only imagine what giant monstrosities might arrive once it was functioning. His only slight hope was that the machines had some connection to the moon that meant they could only operate whilst it was visible above. It was a very small hope to cling to, but all he had. Then, as he continued to observe, something else, even more unusual, caught his eye. As one of the great payloads arrived in another cloud of smoke, a small, four-legged creature, wearing an oddly familiar but very old-fashioned-looking spacesuit, complete with tiny helmet and oxygen tanks, appeared from amongst the items and darted urgently for the cover of nearby mulberry bushes. Fitch had to blink and shake his head to make sure he had really seen it, but was forced to conclude that he had. A cat in a spacesuit had just run from the machine, and if he wasn't dreaming, it bore homeland defence insignia. Oh, for heaven's sake, he growled to himself, but he realised that finding the cat was going to have to be his priority now. There must be a clue in its sudden appearance, and judging by the way it moved, it knew not to hang around in the presence of these weird creatures. Shifting his aching frame onto all fours, Fitch began to crawl in an extremely undignified manner along the rough bricks of the ha-ha towards the mulberry bush where the cat had scampered for safety. Trying his best to keep a low profile, not easy for someone with Fitch's bulk, he dragged himself out of the ha-ha and into the shrubbery where he had last seen the besuited feline. Sure enough, as his eyes adjusted to the slight gloom in the bushes, he saw the cat sitting in its somewhat cumbersome spacesuit, clearly weary and scared, observing him wide-eyed with extreme anxiety. Fitch moved very slowly, partly so as to not scare the animal and partly because he was in too much pain to do otherwise. The cat did indeed have on a very natty-looking spacesuit. Not a perfect fit, but elegant enough in an old-fashioned sort of way. Just below his little helmet and breathing tube was, clearly enough, an enameled badge that read, Homeland Defence. And a second one below that that read, Albion Expeditionary Force, brackets, extraterrestrial, close brackets. More baffled by this than before, Fitch edged closer, reaching out one muscular arm in what he intended to be a reassuring way, and for want of something more cat-friendly to say, offered a grizzled, Here, kitty, kitty, and added a hopeful, 
Good kitty. The cat, though, wasn't buying any of it. And just as Fitch inched close enough to make a lunge, it darted off with surprising speed, leaving Fitch to fall into the dust. Oh, bloody moggy, he muttered, but had no real choice other than to follow it out of the bushes and into the large house in whose gardens they had been having such japes. Glancing over his shoulder as he crossed the threshold, Fitch observed anxiously that the creatures had nearly completed their second great circular machine and were already constructing a third. Two menacing great tripods stood towering over everything, and the little armoured demons were running here and there, setting up a variety of ugly-looking weapons. Any thought of trying to stop them had long since left his head. All he wanted to do was get the blasted space cat and vermouth as quickly as he could. Cautiously making his way into the drawing room, onto which the door led, Fitch surmised that the house had probably once been owned by some sort of inventor. Since most of the room was full of eccentric-looking items, the uses of which Fitch could not begin to imagine. He had no time to consider it further, as he had a cat to find, and in a vain attempt to expedite this, offered up another pathetic, Here, kitty, kitty. No felines being immediately visible, Fitch moved out of the drawing room and into a hallway, where, with a slight start, he noticed a small boy sitting at the bottom of an elegant staircase with, in his arms, the now entirely exhausted-looking cat. Both looked at him with extremely wide, anxious eyes, but made no attempt to run. It appeared they had clearly identified each other as similarly lost souls in a world gone decidedly mad. Fitch realised he was still carrying a rock, and in his battered black leather trench coat, probably looked about as scary as anything that was arriving outside. Moving very slowly so as to not startle them, Fitch placed the rock on a nearby occasional table and spread his arms slightly. I'm not going to hurt you, okay? I think we're all on the same side here. Do you speak English? He asked the boy, who nodded without saying anything. Okay, good. My name is Fitch. What's yours? Tom, replied the boy very quietly, his mouth clearly very dry. Good lad, Tom. Now, I'm guessing we are in Albion, uh, perhaps even the metropolis itself. Am I right? The boy nodded again, and somewhat curiously held out a hard-backed children's book towards Fitch with his free hand. The cat, meanwhile, had closed its eyes and seemed uninterested in taking any further part in proceedings. What's this? growled Fitch, trying to restrain himself as best he could, since he didn't really have time for picture books. However, something about the child's insistence made him curious, and as he took the book, he felt a shiver go down his spine. The tome was indeed a child's storybook of, of some sort, and on the cover, embossed in gold letters, were the chilling words... The Great Martian War. 
Fitch felt his hands tremble a little as he took this in. Page eight, whispered the child, and with slightly shaking hands, Fitch opened the leaves and fumbled to find the page in question. When it finally fell open on the requisite page, he saw a double-spread illustration that was almost certainly meant to be the surface of some stark planet. On the left were a number of Albion commandos in armoured spacesuits, laser rifles in gloved hands, and on the right, a towering tripod that was their adversary. The title of the page read, Albion Commandos Storm the Martian's Moon Base. But most tellingly of all, at the feet of the commandos, in identical four-limbed spacesuits to the one sitting on the boy's lap before him, were a number of cats. The rather prosaic caption beneath the animals read, Holomatron Detecting Cats, which left him none the wiser. His hands were still trembling somewhat at the magnitude of what the book was telling him, and this caused one of the pages to flick over, revealing an illustration that looked incredibly similar to the demons busy constructing bizarre installations outside. The suit was somewhat more old-fashioned looking, but the three eyes and glinting grin were unmistakable. The caption on this drawing read simply, Martian Soldier. A crashing noise from behind caused Fitch to spin on his heels, and he found himself staring at one of the three-eyed aliens from the book, this one very much real, and chuntering to itself in some weird language, a mean-looking plasma rifle pointing straight at them. Seconds after it had started talking, a little grill at the bottom of its helmet sparked into life, uttering in an artificial-sounding but oddly camp metallic voice. Earth grubbers, surrender immediately. Instead of obeying this, Fitch slowly reversed the book to show it the picture. I know what you are, he hissed. But before he could elaborate more, the cat, which had revived itself somewhat, leapt at the alien, who swiveled two of its three eyes and gave a little shriek. Falling backwards, it fired the gothic-looking weapon, and its sickly yellow beam sliced through the ceiling and sent a cascade of plaster and dust tumbling around them. Uh-oh, translated the metallic voice, somewhat belatedly. Finally in his element, Fitch moved quickly, grabbing the plasma rifle and slamming the butt into the alien's helmet, sending a crack spidering through the glass dome. Wisps of sulfurous green smoke seeped out from the fractured helmet. The alien gave a gurgling little moan, which the grill translated shortly afterwards in entirely unsuitably sly tones as, Help! Mummy! Too late for any of that, Martian, growled Fitch, fumbling with the rifle until he found the right controls, and blasted the Martian, and most of the floor, in a stream of molten plasma fire. Evil-smelling smoke filled the room, and fearing further aliens arriving at any time, 
Fitch slung the rifle and moved to grab the boy and the now motionless cat. We are done here, boy. Do you know whether there are any cars or carriages? Coughing and shielding his mouth from the acrid smoke, Tom nodded and began to lead them to an oak-panelled side door. Fitch strode after him, cat tucked under his arm, noting as he went that there was a message canister on the side of the cat's suit. He could only pray that it contained information that might help to improve the plight of humankind. With his free hand, he unlatched the cat's space helmet and cast it to one side. The cat breathed what Fitch did not realise was its first ever mouthful of Earth's atmosphere. And trying his best to be gentle, Fitch rubbed it between its ears. Whoever you are, you've done well. I'll get your message to those who will know what to do with it. He hoped this was reassuring for the animal that seemed tired and heavy in his arms. But Fitch was not sure if he even believed his own words. By turns they came to a garage, and Fitch found a fueled car and drove them all out onto the strangely deserted streets and away from the swelling ranks of the Martian war machine. His only plan was to leave the city, uh, that he now recognised as Orbion's capital metropolis, and attempt to reach the Prime Minister's country house that was not far away at Chartingfold levels. Surely someone there could alert the necessary forces to the invasion now taking place in the heart of the capital? As he drove, he glanced up and realised he was heading straight towards the now waning moon. Perhaps it was a trick of the light, but he could swear that it looked like the orange half-globe was letting off small streams of smoke. Now he knew they were in all kinds of unholy trouble. What other conclusion could one arrive at when it was clear to all who had eyes to see that the moon was on fire? Well, I'm not sure I'm any the wiser about what is going on in this new tale. Hopefully part three will clear things up next week. And failing that, that we have part one to look forward to. For now, this is Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb signing off. Good night, New Orbion. I wish you dreams of a bright future. All characters and stories are copyright to and performed by Darren Callow. With the exception of Dame Hildebrand Dilemma Spaniels, performed by Emma King. All music by Charlotte Savigar. Tales of New Albion is available to buy from Amazon online stores or via Bandcamp, where the album is also available. For more information, go to www.talesofnewalbion.com or search for Tales of New Albion on Facebook. Tales of New Albion is a Monkey Teaspoon production 
Albion Radiophonic Corporation.